Uh, middle school, particularly two years ago, um, we had this struggle with Zadie because she has the most gorgeous spiral curly hair, right? And so that's how I know I named her correctly with a Z name. But um, so it's beautiful. People pay a lot of money for this kind of hair and still can't get it right. I mean, all she's got to do is wash it, put a little product in it, and let it air dry, and her hair is just beautiful. It's not frizzy, it's not too big, it's not too thin, it's, it's just beautiful. Um, but she went through this awkward middle school phase, and she did not like her curls, and she thought her hair was too big. So she would get in front of the mirror all the time, and see, she had developed something that we called hair anorexia. No matter how much she would flatten her hair, you know, with products and everything else, when she looked in the mirror, she saw fat hair, you know, and she couldn't stand the thought of it. And for most of the year, she would give up and ask me to braid it, or she'd put it up in a slicked back ponytail. And uh, we just hated it. We kept telling her, Zadie, your hair is so beautiful. Why can't you see what we see? Even her older sister would tell her, you know, I would love to have hair like that. Quit throwing it back in a ponytail. But she had hair anorexia, you see. So she saw something totally different when she looked in the mirror than what we saw. And um, thankfully now, she has a much different appreciation for her beautiful hair. But the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because as I am talking about these different important confessions of the faith, I don't want you just to see a list. I don't want you just to see a bunch of bricks that I'm building here. I'm not necessarily building a brick wall. And I don't want you to see an intelligent pursuit of knowing God only. I want you to see a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Okay, so that is our aim in learning theology. It's not to win debates. It's not to be the smartest in the room. And it's not to make sure you have all your little bricks in a row, as important as that may be. But we are talking about our God. And so I hope that that is on your mind as we are going through these different doctrines. There's not going to be a quiz at the end. You have them written for you there, so there's no reason to get anxious about everything that I'm sharing. I hope it, it strengthens your praise and your hope that Jesus is Lord. So let's start off again here. We're going to start with the sufferings of Christ as we talk about how Jesus is Lord in his work. You know, Christ's office as priest, we see cited in Psalm 110, verse 4. That's connected to his suffering. You know, not only is he our great high priest, but he is also the sacrifice. And his sacrifice, we learn, was made complete by his suffering. Of course, we're well aware of the sufferings of Christ, but Hebrews elaborately demonstrates how Jesus fulfilled every jot and tittle of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so the beginning of verse 7 from our psalm says, he will drink from the brook by the way. That's some of that poetic language. Christ's passion as a priest to offer himself up once for all at the end of the ages and to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as we 
read in Hebrews 9.26. It was marked by bitterness and suffering. So remember Gideon? You know, unlike Gideon's men, who lapped refreshment, right, cupped it in their hands from a clear brook, our Lord was to drink sorrow and death, the very wrath of God on his path pressing to victory. And it was because of our sin. Our sin is really what caused his sufferings. And so John Prudhoe, another Puritan, he, he contemplates on what exactly it is that Christ drank from the brook, by the way. He says, mortality by his incarnation, strictness and hardness in all his passage by voluntary wants and poverty, the strong potion of the law by his exact obedience and subjection, the Jews' malice by their continual indignities, the floods of Belial by apparent and unknown temptations, the harvest wrath of his father by his unspeakable agony and bloody sweat in the garden, and last of all, death itself on the cross by his sad and extreme passion. You know, only the Christ had the fitness to drink from such a cup. And we learn from Hebrews that, you know, just as the animal sacrifices were burned outside of the camp, Jesus also suffered outside of the city gate, placed with the filth and the cursed. You know, what an encouragement that must have been to the believing Hebrews that in order to persevere, they too needed to step outside of their camp, of the old sacrificial system, where they could partake in true worship due to the once and for all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all those who were still turning then to, to types and to shadows, they had no right to the spiritual offering of Christ, the true sustenance and nourishment to our souls. This is an important part of our confession. In fact, we're reminded of Christ's suffering on our behalf every time we're served the Lord's Supper. You know, through his blood, we are healed. His body given to us nourishes our souls. We may be quick to proclaim a Jesus that gets behind all of our good causes, right? I mean... We're quick to proclaim a Jesus that gets behind fighting against sex trafficking today. We're quick to proclaim a Jesus who is pro-life, right? Heck, we're even quick to proclaim a Jesus who is for sustainable farming. <laughs> we may be quick to proclaim this Jesus who gets behind all our good causes, but this means of grace, it reminds us how evil our own sin is, doesn't it? Sin isn't just all the evil that's out there that we're fighting against, but it's in our own hearts. Our Savior was cursed because of us, not only for all the injustice that's in our midst. And are we as fervent to proclaim a bloody Savior? I think of that with Moses' wife circumcising their son. And she throws his foreskin and says, you have a bloody God. We do. 
we have a bloody God. And if we identify ourselves with him, are we also willing to carry our own cross in his path? All right, let's move on to our next confession. Christ's completed work and resurrection. That's two of them together. Psalm 110 ends, therefore he will lift up his head. So Jesus Christ, he's exalted and he's vindicated and he earns the victory, not only for himself, but also for all those whom the Father has given him. Hasn't lost one. The bridegroom is triumphant for his church. And so he has purchased our redemption with his blood. In Hebrews 9, we learn that Christ entered in the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal salvation. What does that mean? That means everything concerning our approach to God. That's a huge theme in Hebrews, our approach to a holy God. See, the merits of Christ's blood, because of these merits, the preacher to the Hebrews explains that we can now confidently enter the heavenly sanctuary In chapter 10, right leading up to our key verse, we read, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Christ's completed work proven by his resurrection, that gives us an assurance of our faith. We can hold fast to that. And all those Old Testament sacrifices, this is what they were pointing to, this climactic event in history. And also because of his finished work, the Hebrew recipients were given this beautiful benediction at the end of the sermon letter. Your pastor gives you a benediction at the end of each sermon, right? Send you back out to the world with that blessing. Well, we have one beautiful one, the end of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Think about this. Because of the completed work of Christ, the preacher to the Hebrews can now pray for the church to receive all of these applied benefits of the theology that he just taught them in detail. It wasn't just an intellectual pursuit We receive all those benefits because of what Jesus has done. We will bear the fruit. His work was to fulfill this oath of God that we see in Psalm 110, qualifying his people to be consecrated unto him. And God is glorified by the work of Christ transforming us into his very likeness 
I'm not just turning into a better version of Amy Bird. I'm being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Same with you. So let's talk about where he is and what he's doing now. Our next two confessions, the ascension and intercession of Christ. This is one of my favorites to talk about. Even though Psalm 110 only has seven verses, we see this repeated affirmation in verse one and in verse five that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So this is obviously very important and meaningful. Hebrews also repeats the same point, referring to this scripture five times. In Hebrews 1.3, also verse 13 in chapter one, Hebrews 1.8, Hebrews 10.12, and Hebrews 12.2, sitting. It's a position of rest, right? Well, there were no chairs in the tabernacle for the Jewish high priest. Their work was never done. So unlike these Levitical priests who could never sit because their work was never done, Christ is now with his father, seated in the highest place of honor. What is he doing there? He is continually making intercession for his bride. He's doing that right now. I love to, like, just teaching a little Sunday school class to the preschoolers. Ask the question, does Jesus ever sleep? Because we were talking about the creation of day and the creation of night. Yeah, yeah, he sleeps. No, he never sleeps. He always lives to make intercession for the saints. And unlike the Levitical priesthood that was interrupted by death, then every successor needing to be replaced constantly, Christ's death was part of his priestly duty. So he makes intercession forever. His priesthood is permanent. He laid down his life and took it up again. Therefore, we can draw near to God in him. So consequently, he is also able to save us to the uttermost, all those who draw near to God in him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. And you can read more about that in chapter 7 of Hebrews. What a comfort this is for the Christian to have a mediator who continually intercedes before the holy God on our behalf, right? If you want to offer somebody comfort, there it is. We have an unremitting advocate in the sun. He never quits. All right, this next two confessions, these next two confessions are also very important. A holy Catholic church and the communion of the saints. Now, when I use the word Catholic, I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic church. The word Catholic means universal. So I'm talking about the church universal in all time and everywhere. In the second and third verses of our psalm, we read, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. We've got some more poetic language there, right? Well, here we can see the images of a kingdom. 
particularly Christ's rule over his spiritual kingdom, the church. And so we see in these verses that in the midst of his enemies, what is Christ doing? He is expanding his kingdom. In fact, we were once his enemies, weren't we? But we've been pierced by the living and active word of God. And so through the preached word, he's given us eyes to see and ears to hear this irresistible grace of our great and mighty king, Jesus Christ. But this, the creation of spiritual life, it always amazes me. Um, when that happens, we can't see that change. You know, some people have these conversion experiences and, and many just grow up in the church and they, don't, they can't pinpoint when exactly that new birth was. And it kind of reminds me of my tomato garden. Um, I, I like to grow tomatoes. I'm not extremely good at it, but I can get enough to enjoy them anyway. And it always amazes me, you know, when I'm growing these plants and I'm hoping for this big fruit, right? But when does that happen? Like, how does it grow out of that thin little vine, this big tomato? And, you know, is it a little tiny dot that grows and grows and grows and grows? Well, I never see that little dot. I see the flower, and I know, oh, that's where the fruit's going to be. So I'm, I'm looking in there, you know. I want to see this happen. And I'm watering them, and I'm paying all this attention. I'm going to get it this year. I'm going to be able to see that come out. Go to bed, next morning, bam, there's like a piece of fruit like this big on my vine already. How does it do that just overnight? Does it just appear? I don't know if we could get one of those GoPros on it and see that little dot growing and growing super fast or if it just comes out big like that. I don't know. But that's what I think about when I read this verse about the assembly of Christ's willing warriors that serve as his ambassadors of good news. We read that they appear like the morning dew. Well, when my kids were little, you know, they'd go running outside in their bare feet in the morning and they'd say, Mom, did it rain last night? No. Well, it's wet outside. I think it rains. The grass is soaking wet. Oh, no, honey, that's the morning dew. The morning dew? Well, how does that appear without rain? Oh, no. I don't know. It just appears, you know? Well, there's many who are still asleep. You know, their eyes can't see the sparkle of all these innumerable morning dewdrops that represent the growing kingdom of Christ. So he's inaugurated this redemptive kingdom and until he brings in the full number of all those whom the Father has given him, we know from experience and we see that this is not yet a kingdom of glory but we are living under the kingdom of the cross right now, right? That is exactly why we need continuous encouragement to persevere in the faith. You know, as we look forward to this city that is to come, this new garden city temple, oh man, we now live in a world that is full of suffering from the curse of sin. And although... All of Christ's believers, all who are united to him, have been delivered from the reign of sin. And we now live under the reign of grace. Oh, we still struggle with our sin every single day, don't we? So there's this great tension to live in between what theologians call the already 
of our salvation and the not yet of its consummation when he returns. And so the preacher emphatically exhorts us after our verse and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. These are the verses immediately following our exhortation to hold fast to perseverance. Get with your church is what it's saying. This is imperative to theological fitness as we saw in session one last night. Let's move on to the last judgment and day of his wrath. Not a popular confession in our day and age. Those who don't think it prudent to discuss the judgment and wrath of God, they certainly wouldn't confess David's creed. We see in the very first verse, God the Father telling the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then again, two more verses, verses five and verse six out of the seven. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Our God is just. Therefore, mercy the mercy that he shows towards his people, that's through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system alluded to the fact that we need a mediator between our holy God and sinful man. That is necessary. Sinful human beings cannot approach the Holy Father clothed in our own righteousness. Now, sure, these sacrificial systems were done away with, but we still need to be concerned about our approach to God. We still need a mediator desperately. That's why they were done away with, right? Because Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. His blood, his blood, effectually atoning for our sin. So the sins of all those covered by his blood in the covenant of grace, they've been atoned for over 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's one saying that Michael Horton used once that I really um, liked. He grew up in an a church similar to what I grew up in, in a Baptist um, church where there was a lot of focus on your day of conversion. Um, and so people would often ask you what day you were saved. And he said one time he was asked that question and it just came out of them over 2,000 years ago. You know? <laughs> That's when it was done. That's when the work was done. But all those who haven't repented and who don't trust in Christ's work over their own, they do have a judgment day to come. And this is an essential truth. Hebrews delivers very strong warnings for those who have visibly participated in the covenant of grace. You know, they partook in the blessings of the preached word and the sacraments. They received those graces. But then they evidence later that they never were one of God's children by turning away. In apostasy, we're going to talk about more that more in our third talk. The wrath of God for this presumptuous group 
truly is something to fear. We read in Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's some very strong language to put in a sermon to believers, isn't it? These warnings, they actually serve as a means for God to preserve his children. That's what we're going to talk about in our third talk for a good bit. They are real, but we hear our Father's voice in them. So we heed this admonition. So let's move to our next confession, the remission of sins. Verse 4 of Psalm 110 identifies the Lord as a priest forever. Well, the office of the priesthood offers sacrifices for the remission of sins. And so I already mentioned that not only is Jesus our great high priest, but he is also the sacrifice. That is a huge theme throughout Hebrews. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 110.4 repeatedly as the crux of his argument that Jesus is the eternal high priest appointed by the oath of God as the mediator of a better covenant ratified with better promises. In chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 20, chapter 7, verses 17, 21, 24, and 28, all referring to Psalm 110, verse 4. That must be an important line. In fact, the pinnacle of the psalm. So these Hebrew recipients of the sermon letter, they were tempted to return back to their old covenant sacrificial system and ceremonies. And, you know, it might sound silly to us, but, you know, if we think about it, God did institute the Levitical priesthood. And this was a very tangible way for the Hebrews to be assured of their approach to God and worship. And since most agree that Hebrews was written before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple then, it seems like these believing Jews were being excluded from the practice they associated with true worship. You know, it's still going on, the sacrificing, right there in the temple, and, and they're no longer able to participate in that. So the writer to the Hebrews declares Not only is there a change in the priesthood, but there is a change in the law as well. In chapter 7, verse 12, and in quoting Psalm 110, 4, he says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what is he doing here? He is pointing to a greater appointment made by the oath of God who can't lie, that's our confession of hope. And it reveals the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood, 
which had to continually make these sacrifices and replace each priest with a successor. Christ is a priest forever. All these Levitical priests were just pointing to the great priest who was to come. Well, this Melchizedek guy, what the heck is going on here? I mean, he is barely mentioned in scripture at all. And all of a sudden, he's brought up again in Hebrews. Well, we have no record of the genealogy or the lifespan of Melchizedek. He, so he kind of pictures the eternal office of Christ. That doesn't mean he didn't have a birth date and a day that he died, or that he didn't have parents, actual parents, who gave birth to him. He did, but it's not recorded so that he can picture this eternal office of Christ. But we do have in this section, Genesis you know, 14, 18 through 20 is where he's mentioned briefly. We do have a record of Abraham presenting Melchizedek a tithe. And Abraham receives a blessing from this priest. That's pretty remarkable because here we have Melchizedek, who is both the king of Salem, which many believe is short for Jerusalem, and he's the priest. So he is operating under two, pointing to two of these offices of Christ, typifying them. As our great high priest, Jesus Christ, offered the perfect thank offering and the perfect sacrifice for himself. And what does he do? He brings everlasting righteousness to the, peace, to the peace of his people, and peace to his people, I'm sorry. So let's think about this. We're in a very different context from these first Hebrew recipients of this sermon, and we're not tempted to go back to the old covenantal system, are we? I mean, I don't wanna even slaughter my own chicken to eat you know, much less um, for a sacrifice on the altar or something. You know, I just want to go buy my chicken breast all cut up and clean for me. I don't want to be a part of any of that. Um, but we have plenty of default saviors that we wrongly go to for penance. And there's only one acceptable sacrifice for the remission of sins. So we can hold fast because we know that he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding on our behalf this very moment. He is everything that we need. He is all that we need as well. So let's move to the resurrection of the body. This confession takes us back to the first verse of our psalm again. Our Lord is told to sit at the Father's right hand until all of his enemies are put under his feet. In defending the resurrection, Paul quotes this verse while emphatically declaring that the last enemy to be destroyed is death in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26. The writer of the Hebrews also quotes this verse as he explains how Christ's sacrifice is perfect to save to the uttermost in chapter 10, verse 13. But what always gets me about this verse is Christ's remarkable patience and obedience. I mean, after completing his work and ascending to the right hand of the Father, we know that Christ, our victor, can easily destroy all of his enemies with a word, right? Just with a word. And yet here we are, over 2,000 years later, as he waits according to his Father's will to bring in every last 
believer. It's truly remarkable. Interestingly, there's some criticism that Hebrews doesn't include a strong doctrine of the resurrection. I found that very strange. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of assumed and built off of, just like that. Right, the writer briefly mentions the resurrection as one of those elementary doctrines that he wants to apply at a deeper level since the foundation should have already been laid. That's exactly what he does. In fact, all of Hebrews 11 catalogs the history of God's people looking forward to that day of Christ's return. And so the confession of their hope results in life from death. And so I wanted to look more into that and I was having a really hard time finding um, you know, what I was looking for to help explain that better, some good commentary on that. And you know, in this world of technology, you find things in the weirdest places, and I found a strand of gold in the comments section of a blog that I wanted to share with you on this by Dr. David Moffat. This is what he says to demonstrate this. Abel speaks though dead. In 11 verse 4, Noah and his family lived when the flood came. Abraham was good as dead, and Sarah's womb was lifeless when Isaac was born. Isaac was given back to Abraham as a parable of the resurrection. The firstborn of Israel were not killed. Women received back their dead and martyrs endured because they looked to a better resurrection. And then he highlights, you know, in the first original sermon, we didn't have all these beautiful chapter and line breaks, did we? And so what is he leading up to here? What we have in chapter 12 is Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith as the climax to this list and the one who actually has received the promise. So Christ then, having suffered in obedience, has been exalted to the Father's right hand, having received life from the dead. And so he is our guarantor, we are told, not only of those martyrs in chapter 11 of Hebrews, but to all of us who faithfully endure. He truly is perfecting for all time those who are being sanctified. And so then in this new city that we will receive, whose designer and builder is God, we read about in chapter 11, everything will be holy and incorruptible. I can't even begin to imagine what that will be like. I look forward to having that perfect body that will be equipped for the worship of God. Which leads to our last confession, life everlasting. That brings us back to the pinnacle of our psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, of course, we immediately see the importance of this word forever. If the son is a priest forever, then his intervention on our behalf is everlasting. And even more interesting and assuring is, is what this verse reveals about the basis of his eternal priesthood. Remember, this is the father talking to the son. And Christ is witnessing his father swearing an oath on his very life that this will be. So the preacher to the Hebrews focuses and hones in on this oath when he is quoting from Psalm 
110, verse 4, and chapter 7, verses 17 through 28, he concludes, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have the oath of God to give us complete assurance and confidence that God accepts Christ's intervention on our behalf forever. So picking up on this appointed priesthood, we read in chapter 9, verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So our confidence to approach God and our hope to live with him eternally, it's not based on anything that we can do to atone for our sin or to earn some sort of relationship with him. It's fully reliant on the God who was faithful. Jesus Christ came to fulfill this oath that he agreed to with the Father, sharing of the same will, to be our mediator in the covenant of grace. And so we read in Hebrews, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So all those who trust in him, we are delivered from that covenant of works. And instead of hearing, do this and you shall live, we hear all of this Christ has done. So there's the, the long and the short of it, a short psalm, my long confessional breakdown, and then this last short conclusion that sums it all up again. God is faithful. Jesus is Lord. And the Spirit applies it all to his beloved. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Maybe you're wondering why we are exhorted to hold fast to a confession. Well, our focus verse from Hebrews, it highlights the relevance of our theology. Our confession of hope, Jesus is Lord, also reveals that he is indeed, that we are indeed holding fast not to words, but to a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What we know to be true about God and about his promises is vital to our perseverance in the Christian life. So by the time this preacher to the Hebrews exhorts us to hold fast to our confession of hope, he's confident that he has given us that what we are to believe, and that why we are to believe it, because he's faithfully preached the who that is our crown of glory. You see, every Christian will persevere, but we all need biblical encouragement along the way. So whatever stage of that race, we're in different stages. Whatever stage of the race that we may find ourselves in, it's the truth of the gospel, and it's the power of the Spirit that's going to help us to endure. Sometimes we just need to be encouraged to endure the regular everyday stuff, right? I know I do. My flesh is weak. Other times we will be faced 
with unbearable tragedy. So in this world that's cursed by the effects of sin, we're going to encounter so many misfortunes, such as the loss of loved ones, every single one of us is, betrayal, persecution, illness, or rejection. You know, we, we react to these circumstances according to our beliefs. That's why it's so important for us to be solid in our theology. The more we learn about God, the stronger our faith and gratefulness grows. So hopefully after you leave here today, you're going to be able to answer that question well. What is your hope? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you. We are not without hope. Our hope is that Jesus is Lord. Lord, our hope is based on the fact that you have sworn this with an oath. And you have done all of the work to make this so. We thank you so much for your great covenant of redemption, Lord. That you are a faithful God who follows through with your word. And that we can hold fast to that. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And, and for the application, Lord, the Spirit applies this work to us. Lord, I pray right now that you will help remind us what you are doing now and what you are going to do. Lord, what you have done and how live, alive your word is and active your word is so that we will be in your word, that we'll be meditating on your word, that we'll be sharing your word. And Lord, I pray that we can do this now in our little breakout um, that we can just glean more fruit from these confessions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.